Good morning. Through the goodness of God, each of y'all got to open two gifts today. Your eyes. Did you pause to thank God? The Scripture today is from the 25th chapter of Exodus, verses 1-8. through The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is a contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tan ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, and for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. These are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Chip, I just want to give you a hug. Every, every time you do it, I, sometimes I want to just like pray and go after you're done. So, so beautiful. It is good to be home. It's good to be home. I want to hug everybody. I, I'm going to tell you why in a minute. I want to hug Grant. So here, the first time I ever met Grant in worship capacity was in the dark in, the, in, uh, in Haiti around a fire uh, with a bunch of high school kids. Um, and I think my daughter was one of them. And uh, it's home for me to watch that guy right there stand up here with his guitar and lead us in some of the same songs that we did there together around the warmth of this, of this fire in Haiti. And there's a million things. There's a million things that feel like home. I've been gone for a few weeks, but that's not the whole story. Um, uh, but the story is relevant to what we're going to talk about today, this crazy, weird story with onyx and cubits and, and, and acacia wood and all these things that you might have done your personal worship this week and said, what in the world? Do I, it's like some kind of, it's like an Ikea manual for building a thing. And um, and there's two more chapters of it coming. What are we going to do? It's, uh, today, it's all going to make sense. But uh, we start with um, how I got up here today. So several weeks ago, weeks and weeks and weeks ago, uh, I realized that Sam Smith was supposed to preach today, and you would have been really way better off, But he, because um, he would be brilliant with this passage. But Sam is the headmaster of our school, and the busiest, craziest, toughest, most exhausting time of the year is the end of the school year for the headmaster and for the, the school personnel. And uh, I saw, oh man, so he's going to try and finish the year and then go on vacation, but he's going to have to be thinking about a sermon while he's gone. So I said, I'll do it. No problem. Because I had this vision of how this was all going to go for the last several weeks. And it went like this. Um, in early June, after the end of the school year, my family and I were going to go on a long, uh, we were going to go on a beautiful, long planned vacation to Colorado where my brother and his wife were going to take us and we were going to tour the majesty of the mountains and we were going to go rafting and everything else. We would go on this trip. We would be completely renewed. I would return home and have a week of rest to just contemplate and uh, Rachel would go off to Haiti and, you know, thousands saved, hundreds healed. And uh, we would just, you know, sort of uh, meditate and reflect and I would come to preach with you this morning. That was the plan. So here's how it went. So the day before we left for our majestic trip to Colorado, we went to a luncheon to prepare to go to Haiti, as did Tom, who was also leaving soon for a trip for two weeks or so. 
And Rachel and Rana and I went to the luncheon and ate lunch with the other 40 people who got food poisoning. So we did not know that until we didn't know we'd taken on some passengers until we got on the plane the next morning, flew to Colorado, stopped at Wendy's on the way home, uh, had a nice lunch, uh, got to the house, uh, and then one after the other proceeded to uh, bear the fruit of food poisoning various ways in several, over several days, all of us, every single one of us, all four that were there with my brother and his wife, and they were amazing, and they were just like, okay, who feels good right now? Well, let's go hiking, and they just sort of made it work, and we kind of did everything on the checklist, but not together, not exactly how I had imagined, and uh, then we get back, we get Rachel ready to go on the trip, and my mom had gone in for a pretty major surgery right before we left, uh, but she was supposed to be well into recovery. If you know my mom, she's, you know, strong like bull. And uh, we thought, no problem. My other brother is going to watch and take care of her. And she was doing better and better and better. And then right before we were to come home from Colorado, she began to decline. So when I got back, we got, Haiti, we got Rachel ready. We sent her to Haiti. I went straight to the ICU to spend several days with my mom. My mom, who if you know, like we call her the eagle, that's her code word, you know, the eagle has wounded a wing, you know, the eagle has landed. We, we talk about her like that, because she was like born to fly, you know, she, she uh, is this just big majestic person, tons of energy, she's 86 years old, uh, nothing has ever slowed her down, and there I am sitting in the ICU with her. She's totally helpless. We don't know what's going to happen exactly. We don't think anything's too serious, but when you're 86, you know, you're 86, and I would watch her get uncomfortable. You ever been with somebody in the ICU? They can't sleep, but they don't want to be awake, and they get the tubes, and they just, they're just, and they're just not at home. And home isn't just a place you live any more than a home for me is just the building this church meets in. It's a million things. It's friends and family and sights and sounds and smells. It's where you can breathe. And so I watched my mom sort of struggling and twisting and turning and just not where she belonged and not how she belonged. So that's how I got here. She's okay. She's in a re- she went to a rehab center yesterday and she's, she's on the men. She's on the up and up. But that's what happened here today. And I look back over that period of time and I thought, well, the Lord surely was preparing me for this passage and this day to be with you. What this passage is really about, these instructions for building this strange tabernacle out in the desert, is it's really, um, at the end of the day, it's about heaven. So I posed this question, I actually threw it out, texted it to a bunch of people, shoot it, shot it out on Facebook, and I got a bunch of beautiful responses. Some people sent me beautiful pictures. Some people sent me a video. I got this, one of the first things I got, uh, six in the morning as the sun was rising, 6.30 in the morning, I just got a video of somebody who was making a sunrise crossing across the Gulf Stream. And I got some comments that were really beautiful. I wanted to share something with you, uh, some of them with you. Darren, one of my community group buddies, he said, for me, it's my family. It's all of you guys. It's our church and community. Long days and afternoons with the kids all playing golden South Cal- Southern Carol- California sunsets. 
all the things that really speak to me and really fill my cup, all the bad things of this world, disease and traffic and evil, cease to exist. And then he says, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, but I'm no theologian, although I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. (laughs) Steve and another community group buddy, it's a place of love and praise through everything we do. All of our actions glorify God. We have relationships. We work. We know people from the past. We meet new people. Marla. Dear, dear sister. Been at Rio forever. Lost her mom not long ago. She didn't lose her. She sent her to heaven. Marla said many Sundays during worship, I can't help but cry because I imagine my mom and all of heaven singing along with us. I long to be in that choir, singing in the very presence of God, singing with my mom. Elizabeth, one of our uh, young adult leaders, said, Heaven is the fulfillment of the soul's deepest longings. Barb Ingram, one of the two for whom the Ingram Center is named, Uh, awesome, awesome, dear mother of this church, Uh, used to be the preschool director and the librarian. So, of course, she sent me a quote from E.E. Cummings. Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes open. And one of our facility guys, Chase, wrote this. I took one step into the majestic place right past the gates, A sinless world of adventure awaits. As I'm walking, innocence fills the air. A childlike sense of belonging is here. A speechless beauty my eyes have longed to adore. French writer Albert Camus, who's an atheist, he was a reluctant existentialist. He didn't like being called that, but that's what he was. He was a Philosopher, he didn't like being called that either, but um, Albert Camus acknowledged that people have a deep longing for meaning. He acknowledged this. He acknowledged that people have a deep longing for an enduring love, a love that lasts forever. They want to know that they exist beyond this world. He said that it's a natural human response to their mortality. And he said, we try to dress it up and make it pretty and we use religion and all kinds of things um, to, to, to make that fact go away that we are mortal and that life is meaningless and that all is chaos, but we need to buck up and face it. He would not have been a fan of uh, the circle of life. You, who saw the king, in, I mean, uh, uh, the Lion King? The circle of life, right? And it's beautiful and the sun is setting and they're up the thing and everybody's talking and you see all the animals out there. Uh, But the song, according to Albert Camus, goes like this. You all become fertilizer. And you can paint as pretty a picture as you want, says Camus. But the thought to the human being that everyone I've ever known, everyone I've ever loved, every memory of me will become dirt is the reality. And we need to face it. You're born, you live, you die, 
deal with it and try and have some fun in the middle. The problem, the problem for Mr. Camus is that he appeals to transcendent truths. He has to appeal to codes of ethics. He believes in his writings that there are people who are innocent. There are people who are evil. He cannot himself resist the instinct to long for something more than this life that governs this life. Even he needs it to understand his meaninglessness. So one of my favorite scientists, philosopher, poet, theologians, uh, is Blaise Pascal. He did believe in God, and here's what he said about that natural human longing. He said, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? Of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This in, tr- in vain he tries to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, God himself. So here's my proposal for you today. And this isn't just for someone who isn't a Christian or doesn't believe in God or hasn't contemplated these things. This is absolutely every bit for every one of you if you have grown up in church or you've grown up uh, in some form of religious pursuit. It's for every one of us. The proposal is this, to find meaning, to find enduring love, to find heaven. You must seek beyond the majesty of mountains the imagination of streets of gold. You must, you must search far beyond the love of your family, the health of your children, even a cause in this life to find enduring love and meaning, to find heaven. You must find God. Better stated for the Christian God must find you. This takes us to our passage today. Exodus 25. God has freed His people from slavery in Egypt. Remember that. Slavery in Egypt. He's taken them to a mountain in the wilderness and He's delivered His law to them. He's given them His instructions, right? His nature and His character and how we shall then live in this world as a result. He's delivered all of this to them. But then He does something else. He tells them to do something that we uh, encounter today. He says uh, to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And then... For me. And then he gives this long list of precious materials. And then he gives the purpose. And let them make a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. 
This is extraordinary. It's extraordinary for any time in human history, but certainly for 3,500 years ago, when they were in this ancient desert looking for this promised land flowing with milk and honey where the Canaanites lived and the Canaanites worshipped this tandem God relationship, one named El who was the wise old one with the beard and one named Baal who was the warrior king, those gods were not particularly interested in condescending to their people. And so this is what it would have looked like to those Canaanites if they looked down on the people of Israel they would have seen this. There are 12 tribes represented there. You'll see them in those big squares, 3, 6, 9, 12. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the middle is that tabernacle, that moving temple that God instructed them to build so that He could dwell in their midst. So that He could come down to be with them. Imagine that scene at night That flame represents the presence of God over the tabernacle. Imagine being in those tents and being drawn drawn to that tabernacle, but maybe fearful of what would happen if you approached it. Imagine being up on those mountains looking down on that scene. You'd never seen anything like that from your God before. And then if you came in closer, you'd see the tabernacle itself. And um, that perimeter wall is 30 feet tall. And they would build this tabernacle that traveled with them wherever they went in the desert so that God would be with them wherever they went in the desert. And you see, God is speaking with baby talk here. You need to hear this with modern ears. You need to imagine yourself in your desert and God condescending to you so that He could dwell in your midst. But here's what they would do to get to the presence of God. They'd go through that front entry And they'd come first to the high altar where they would make a blood sacrifice for what? For their sins. In other words, before they could even approach the holiness of God, the first thing they had to do was get honest with themselves and with Him. And they'd make the sacrifice on the high altar and then they'd pass around it and all the Israelites could do this. And then there was a laver, a basin for ceremonial cleansing where they would wash themselves of all impurity And then only the priests could go in to the holy place inside the first chamber of that tent. And in there, they'd find a a table of showbread. On that table, there would be 12 loaves of bread that represented God's provision for the 12 tribes of Israel. There would be a lampstand that represented the light of the wisdom of God. And there'd be... um, a place to burn incense that would represent the sweet aroma of the prayers of God's people as they rose up to heaven. But then, one day a year and only one, the high priest with the blood of an unblemished lamb at threat of his own life if he had not been honest with God about himself before he went in, would enter in to the Holy of Holies to the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelt and He would sprinkle the blood of the unblemished lamb on the mercy seat. 
cherubim angels standing over it, guarding over, protecting it, just like they are standing in front of the Garden of Eden, if you read that in Genesis chapter 3. And from that seat, God was present with His people. But it was His baby talk. Do you know what this was all about? This was a portal back to Eden. This was a portal back home, back to the Creator, the God, the Father who walked in the cool of the morning with His children. That's the way it's described in Eden. It was a journey from chaos back to normal. It was the way to heaven. And God designed this very carefully so that to walk through these outer courts and into the holy place and into the holy of holies was a reminder that in this life you are a fish out of water because you were made for eternity. You were not made to decay. And the struggles of this life are like a fish flopping around on the ground trying to take in the air that it cannot find because it's not where it was made to be. And then before your last gasp, you jump back in the water. But the water is not first a place or a feeling or a set of rules or a vision. The water is the presence of God. It was the presence of God that sustained the garden. The garden was the fruit of God's presence. It was the Holy of Holies. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And humans dwelt freely together with God there. Being in the presence of God was as natural as it was for a fish to be in water. But after the rebellion, and what happened? What happened in this garden, in this divine narrative? What happened in this garden is that we self-determined that we could run the garden we could sustain the garden, that there was better water to be had. And so we became us-centered rather than God-centered. And our presence with God became unnatural. As a little side note, do you know what that means? It means that if you choose to be me-centered, you won't like heaven. You won't like it there. Because heaven is God-centered. But after that rebellion, the choice for self, rather than God-centered garden, this presence became unnatural. We couldn't sustain the garden. God did that. In our hands, the garden would die. And at that point, the relationship with God became awkward. It became clumsy. It became acrimonious. We were fish that jumped out of the water in hopes that there was better water somewhere else. And in doing so, we began to die. But God had a plan. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 3. God had a plan from that moment. And we see a lot of that plan revealed in the prophecies. So when I was in seminary, you'd get to the part of the Bible uh, where the prophets were, Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those guys. And you'd get totally lost. How many of you have had that experience? You're like, oh, they're reading the cool history stories. And this is the weird part. Skip over to the Gospels and the New Testament. Literally, my prophet's class at seminary, we had this ancient old professor. His name was Elmer Smick. He was like, he, he went to high school with Moses. And, and he said, all right, first day of class, all right, students, take out a pencil. So you know how old he was because he thought we all had a pencil. And 
Take out a pencil and write down all the books of the Old Testament in order. Seminary students. So we all smoke through the Torah and the historical writings and all that all stuff and the poetry and the wisdom literature and then we all hit the prophets and it's just like slam on the brakes. We are just idiots. We're, we, we don't know the order. We miss books. Everything else. We just get lost in the prophets. Here's the, here's the thing with the prophets. The prophets give you the answers to God's vision for the world even before they happen. And so let me just share a couple thoughts with you. I'm going to jump to Ezekiel chapter 36. This is God's plan. This happened much later than the building of the tabernacle. He says this, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, he says to the people of Israel, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. That's his plan. But then, go to Isaiah. Remember when I said to remember Egypt? Listen to this. Maybe you've never encountered this. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. And a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts that the, uh, in the land of Egypt. When they cry, the Lord... Uh, when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make Himself known to the slave owners, to the Gentiles, to the heathens, to the pagans. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with a sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord. What? The Egyptians belonged to the Lord? And then he goes on to say that from Egypt he will build a bridge to the Assyrians who were responsible for the exile of the Jews during this time of the prophets. That's God's plan. That's how it all comes together. That's what he's about. So then very briefly, you jump ahead to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 9, and Tom's going to talk a lot more about what I'm about to share with you through the Gospel of John, actually. In the book of Hebrews, it says, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent... He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. God's baby talk, build me a tabernacle, a porthole back to Eden. It's going to travel with you in the desert, but when you find the holy city, Jerusalem, build me a permanent temple, a permanent temple that shall not move, though God knew that it wasn't permanent because it was rooted in the things of earth. He knew that the eternal temple was Jesus Himself. So Jesus rose and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. 
but the real eternal temple remained. Later in Hebrews, the author says, All who died in faith, not having received the promises, yet seeing them from afar, they welcomed them. Recognizing what? That they were strangers, that they were sojourners on the earth. Instead, they were aspiring to a better place, a heavenly one. For God has prepared a city for them. He wants to throw you back in the water. Heaven is the pure presence of God and its glorious fruit. To find meaning, to find enduring love, to find heaven, you must find God, or better, you must let Him find you. And when you come, when you come home, When you're back in the water, oh, the beauty of that Garden of Eden. Drew Brown, our women's ministries director for our students, painted the picture of that garden in her mind. Everything will be made new. A return to the perfect state of the garden where we can be with God and worship Him in perfect intimacy because there will be no sin, no pain, nor suffering or brokenness. Everything is set right and we are forever with Him. To me, it feels like perfect peace when I consider heaven. One of our elders, Tom Olive, said it this way, Heaven is a place where we, for the first time, truly feel home. A place of no anxieties or self-doubts because we can finally know who we are in God. It's a place where relationships are pure and totally honest. It's a place where beauty is relentless and we never get used to it. It's a place where our understanding of how truly wonderful our God is overwhelms us every moment of every day. That sounds pretty good, right? St. Augustine, long before Albert Camus or Blaise Pascal, said this, You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And that is heaven. And you can taste it right here and right now. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand at the foot of this insurmountable mountain that is your holiness, grasping for breath, knowing that left to ourselves, we do not sustain life. It slips away. And we open ourselves, Father, for you, the sustainer and giver of life, to find us, to atone for our self-centeredness through Christ, and to take us home and to put us back in the water where we can breathe eternal life again, and we can fulfill our greatest, most beautiful purposes. We pray that you would do it now, and that you would begin it now, that heaven would come to earth through us. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.